Thanks to everybody. Well, you may be seated, and um, now I, I can't resist to say, of all the passengers on this flight, um, we just get super, super blessed by these little ones like little Isaac. So y'all wave at Isaac. Welcome, Isaac. <laughs> what a blessing. I tell you, these kids, it's just, it's so beautiful. And all, all, the, all the things we share with our boys and girls, and uh, welcome to each of our guests today. If you're visiting for the first or second time, your presence means so much to us. It's a part of our journey. It's a part of our calling to share uh, one with another uh, in, in just in the good things of God together. And uh, today, we're doing part two of a three-part series on a vital truth that is, again, in a way, like what I just said about the anchor, it's kind of an anchor of the truth in every Christian's walk with God, and they hear it, most hear it, um, maybe the most maybe the most uh, distinctly, at the communion table, which again, we'll be meeting at the communion table together on November the 19th, just prior to the Thanksgiving week. Um, but sometimes the resonance of these words escapes the, the Christian brain, and those are what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples in the night in which he was betrayed and broke bread and distributed it to them and then gave them the fruit of the vine to really take the old Passover experience of ancient times that was in the minor key of anticipation of the coming Messiah, and in musically we might say it's the minor key with a bit of a plaintive sound of yearning and anticipation, and Jesus, by his words, raised the entire, elevated the entire calling of every person of faith to a major key of grace and hope and eternal assurance through the blood that he was to shed on the cross through his resurrection glory. So we could say this, that when Jesus spoke these words, this is my covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, as often as worshipers may hear these words and as resonant as they are, it is the, like an anchor too, in that it is this secure truth that is at the very foundation of all the great blessings of freedom and grace that come into our lives. When we think about the minor key in music and the major key, we might look at it like this, that God had designed it in such a way that we need to be alerted to our need even before we find God's fulfillment of that need. Now, God did that in a, in a historical way over the span of centuries, actually millennia, but he also does it on the individual level in that the, the word of the gospel comes to us to bring an awareness, an awakening in a sense of how lost we are. How many people may be seeing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and yet not understand that truly in every sense of the word, in every sense of the word, each of us in our own way are wretched. And yet today's, in today's generation, often we're hearing, or when we hear about uh, the amazing grace, the amazing part of it, the astounding part of it, that grace rescued us from the pit of our sin is not vividly clear to many people. 
Therefore, when Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood given for you, the very words signal to our soul what the Bible describes in a number of places as the keys of the kingdom. We're going to talk about the keys of the kingdom in light of these words, this is the new covenant in my blood, with the backdrop of that minor key, again, musically speaking, the minor key that signals a kind of yearning for what is, what is out there and what the, what the soul desires, but of course cannot obtain on its own. And then in the New Testament, the major key where the brightness and the fullness and the fulfillment of God's promise through the Messiah becomes crystal clear in those words, this is the new covenant. Now, briefly, a quick review. We, we touched on this last week. We saw that in Jeremiah chapter 31, there's a prophecy of this day, this coming day of the new covenant. And I'd like you to take a Bible, if you would, there. Um, the Bibles that are available uh, in the chairs is, is, uh, are, are a good starting point for us today. Uh, because we will look together at a couple of passages of Scripture that I want to invite you uh, to read along with me uh, as we think about what the meaning of this is for us in the now, the new covenant. Why is this so significant? Why is it an anchor, uh, you know, in a way, if you think of it in a pictorial way, pictorial way, uh, be beneath the, the vast ocean of life, there's this great anchor that secures you and is a real part of how you and I interact with Almighty God. Let's do this. If you have your Bible there, uh, open to that uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 passage. And as you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, remember that... Um, what I'm hinting at here on the, the screen is a prophecy that is embedded in a, in, a, in a phenomenally significant time in the experience of the Israeli people because the, the, the horizon in their lives could not have been more dark at this point in time. Their entire existential reason as a nation had gotten blown to smithereens by the invasion of, 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 of the world power of that time, the Babylonians. And, and Jeremiah's ministry that had spanned almost a half century, an incredibly long ministry, an incredibly difficult assignment, had warned of the coming destruction years before it actually happened. And yet also, Jeremiah was tasked with living through the very, the very same cataclysmic events that he was sent to prophesy of. And so when we think about Jeremiah's prophecy, it's, it's very notable that it, it happens to come in, in the midst of the time where the people of that day had actually tasted the very worst of what they had feared. And even today, one of the interesting things about the state of Israel is that because of recent events that are quite um, 
unprecedented. Once again, God is using that tiny little piece of real estate to reshape events in the Middle East. Jeremiah's prophecy was, was a, a foreshadowing of a great redemptive restoration that was to come. And it had national implications for the natural people of Israel, of course, in many of which we are seeing played out uh, before our very eyes today in light of the fact that there are the, the very significance of that tiny piece of real estate once again has become pivotal in changing the dynamic of the Middle East in terms of how the Arabic, Arabic nations are relating to Israel. There's some amazing developments in that area. And in, in recently at the United Nations when Prime Minister Netanyahu was speaking about uh, the events of about the last five years, or particularly the beginning of the Abrahamic Accords, the Prime Minister referenced the very thing that is at the core of why God used Jeremiah. And I thought it was fascinating that this happened in a UN speech in that Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke about how the tiny real estate of the state of Israel has now become pivotal in, through the Abrahamic Accords of a changing, a literal sea change in how people are viewing the prospects of peace in the Middle East. The troubles are still monumental and, and they are mind-boggling and the, the greatest minds of uh, uh, conflict resolution are, are, are put to the maximum test when, whenever you look at the Middle East. And yet, the significance of the very land that God chose and singled out and used in the days of Jeremiah is now, again, pivotal in global events. But Jeremiah's purpose was not really the focus on those far distant future events as much as the focus on the reason for hope. And that is a linkage with you and I today, wherever you are. You may say, I don't understand the last five things he said. But, but, uh, but wherever you are, um, the linkage with hope is anchored in these words. This is the new covenant. What's remarkable is that anchor of hope was uttered, was put into play in about six centuries prior to the death of Christ, right around 590 B.C., and here is the word of the Lord from Jeremiah. I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel in those days. Now, when you open 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and notice there in the third verse that we saw last week why this promise of a new covenant is so vital. And in the text of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Verse 3, we read that clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. This 2 Corinthians 3, 3 is a direct fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 
where the Bible says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. What's the nature of this new covenant? Why will it be so significant? Because God, it says, will write his will into the fleshly tables of the heart. The very promise that God gave as a link to future hope for those people 600 years before the birth of Jesus now becomes in 2 Corinthians 3.3 the exact expression of what applies to all of our lives today and it basically means this, that in the present tense the Holy Spirit is working to make God's will real to all of us. What an awesome promise it is to get a hold of. And, and how beautiful it is to know that it is there for us. And so what I'd like to ask you to do is to think in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about these, um, these, these principles. Pro-presenter has gone blank there for some reason on, on, uh, on that slide, Ian. So I'm going to just advance that. So we're talking about the fact, and I want to give you this summary quickly, that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, there, there are five things that I wanted to touch on with you. The first one is what we saw last week, the correspondence of the Apostle Paul, such a fascinating way that the Apostle Paul demonstrated um, the need for a letter. Remember we saw that um, actually it's an amazing aspect of the New Testament that had it not been for problems that Paul encountered, some of which were incredibly difficult for him, he wouldn't have needed to write a letter. And if he hadn't needed to write a letter, we would not have had in permanent form the, the exact wording that the Holy Spirit flowed through a chosen human vessel. The human vessel is imperfect, we know, but the transmission of God's eternal word is God breathed, as we saw in our Open Bible Workshop seminar in March. Thank you so much. And when you get to this and you begin to realize that the letters themselves not only are priceless to us, but they carry for us a, a very special message. They carry for us a message that also helps us realize what God is doing in our lives. And that message is that your heart and mine is like a tablet upon which the Holy Spirit is writing his will. So the correspondence of verses 1 through 3 is, is vital understanding about the new covenant because God had intended to make it something that would be eternally effective in every heart, and yet it would have an unshakable, unchanging foundation. So think of it like this. The first three verses of 2 Corinthians 3 tell us that the letters he wrote are not only vital and eternally significant in themselves, but they illustrate another kind of letter that God was going to write. And that is the present tense dynamic working of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people. And it's why I asked you to read this verse aloud with me last week. You are a letter from 
Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. You are a letter from Christ. You are a letter from Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. This is so weird. I touch one and it's the wrong, it's the wrong one. So I, I don't know why Pro, Pro Presenter has gone crazy on us here this morning. So but what I but so what I want to ask you to think about though, just hang with me, is that um is that uh maybe bring me the advancer. Yeah, let's just do it that way. <laughs> so 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 this is beautiful though, when you go to that fourth and fifth verse. Now, and think about what this tells us about the new covenant itself. In verse 4, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3, 4, we have such trust toward God through Christ. As you find that in your Bible, think about the wording of this. We have such trust through Christ. And, and when, we, when we think of it this way, um, we understand why this statement that I asked you to read last week was so significant. And I'm going to personalize it today. Instead of you are a letter, say it with me. I am a letter written not with ink. Say it with me now. I am a letter written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Think about what that means for us. Now you might say, wow, that sounds like an audacious thing to say. And yet the reason it's so significant is that God gave us confidence through Christ. And, and in light of that, I think that... Um, <laughs> okay, okay I, am, I have gotten myself all tangled here. I'm sorry. All right. Yeah, here we go. So, so in, in light of that, the keys of the kingdom are this, that God had designed us as living letters. That means that he's going to write upon our lives his eternal word. Uh, secondly, um, it tells us that uh, there are contrasts in verses 6 through 13 that show us why we needed this living letter. And then there is a, there's a conversion that takes place, and it's called in the Hebrew teshuva. And verse 17, verse 16 focuses on this, that whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And then finally, it is confidence in the Holy Spirit. It is the working of the Holy Spirit that makes all of this so vital and so powerful for us. And so I think one, th one way that we might look at this would be to think about the three callings. Now, here we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, that we are living epistles, verses 3 and 4. We're living epistles known and read of all men. And then in your Bible, look down at the fifth verse. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. That verse tells us Something that's in common, that all of us have in common here today in this sanctuary. And that is, God is doing a work in your life because you were redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it could only happen 
through the resurrection power that came after his crucifixion. In the resurrection life of Jesus, there are three places in the Bible where you and I, our callings are described as being given this new life to energize who we are. The first one is living sacrifices. Now, that text is Romans 12. We're not going to turn to these, but I want you to have them for yourself. Because that's a worship text, but it's more than the worship we think of just in, say, assembling and and participating in uh, songs of worship and, and a service. That is designed to be the kind of the training ground, the springboard of a life of worship. So Romans 12, 1 talks about it in this light, that we are living sacrifices. Say those words aloud with me today, living sacrifices. Now, it's against the backdrop of that Old Testament we saw in Jeremiah's day. They were depending upon uh, sacrifices of animals that would come to an altar and would take the place of the sinner. Now, through the cross of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that everything that needed to be done in order for us to be reconciled to God was done through what Jesus Christ did on the cross and in the resurrection. So we might say, well, there's no more need for a sacrifice. And that's right. There's no more need for a sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice for sin is complete. In his dying gasp, the Lord Jesus said, it is finished. In the completion of that sacrifice, Scripture tells us you and I, putting our trust in Christ, can go free. We can live free. We can grow in the grace of God because we stand on a foundation of forgiveness. We can never add one iota of merit to the sacrificial atoning blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But there's a different kind of sacrifice. And that is the sacrifices of a total giving of our lives to God. Now, these living sacrifices, we might say, are sacrifices of gratitude. These are grateful sacrifices. Martin Luther summarized this about 550 years ago in a very succinct way when he said, salvation is all of grace and service is all gratitude. Very simple. Salvation is grace, service is gratitude. Well, that puts in a tight phrase what Romans 12.1 is saying, that because of the great mercies of God, all the things that he's done for us, the very least we can do, he says, is let our whole bodies be like a living sacrifice. It's a way of saying, when I wake up every morning because of Jesus and what he's done for us, I can say, Lord, my life belongs to you. Living sacrifices. And then there is the living stones. In 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, the Bible speaks of God taking individuals, and every individual is designed with a unique purpose. And because of the grace of God, the Holy Spirit's power is enabling living stones to be brought together to be, as he calls it, a spiritual house. A spiritual house in which we're all called to partake of the benefit of God working in the lives of others. 
Another way to think of the living stones is that as, as important as the living sacrifices are, we're not alone. It's not a, we're, there are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. We need one another. We need the connection of the family of God. We need, and that's why local church life is so vital, that uh, with all of its challenges and all of its needs, that local church life is the place where we understand that living stones dynamic uh, the closest. And then the living epistles of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 then are the, the witness of your life, the ongoing witness that God brings out of every person's life. And all of these things were only made possible because of the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus. And then that leads us to the heart of 2 Corinthians 3. And with your Bible open, look now at verse 7. Now here we get to an amazing contrast. I think of it as the contrasting covenants. Remember we saw in the days of Jeremiah there was a promise of a day when God would walk with his people, work with his people, that communion with the living God would be something available to every person, that God would write his will into their hearts. Now in 2 Corinthians 3, 7, look at what the text says back in your Bible. But if the ministry of death written and engraven on stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? What an amazing statement here. Remember that when Moses was given the Ten Commandments, that vivid scene that is implanted in many people's brains from eons ago from the great Ten Commandments movie, the, the, uh, that, that unforgettable uh, portrayal of, of those events. But whether it's from that or from growing up in Sunday school and hearing about the Ten Commandments or just your imagination of Moses, let your mind drift back for a minute to what you think about Moses. Remember that when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, there were certain, uh, there was a powerful manifestation of God attached to it. Not long after the giving of the Ten Commandments and the magnificent portrayal of the coming tabernacle, the people of Israel fell deeply into rebellion and sin when they worshipped the golden calf in Exodus 32. Moses was heartbroken, obviously distressed, and when he came back into the presence of Almighty God, you might think that um, all hope would be gone. But the second part of the scene is fascinating. As God brings Moses into his presence, he now is not only going to reissue the commandments, but he sets up a pattern that will showcase in the future the power of this new covenant. This is what 2 Corinthians 3.7 is talking about. And what happened was that Moses goes into the immediate presence of Almighty God and the Shekinah glory, the sheer radiance, the sheer splendor of his glory was so great that God manifested his power in Moses' life in a way that there was a sheen on Moses' face. And what this sheen reflected was that even with stone tablets... There was a glory that was indescribably powerful that Moses experienced. Yes, even with these stone tablets. Well, 
in 2 Corinthians 3, we've already seen God's intention was not to leave his law written in stone. His intention was to make this an actual experience of the human heart. So in the text of 2 Corinthians 3, the use of the word flesh is it's one of only two places in the New Testament where flesh is used positively because in 2 Corinthians 3, it has to do with the human heart, the humanity. And it is indicating that our hearts need what only God can impart. So the first contrast of the covenant was between stone tablets and human hearts. Stone and fleshly. Stone and fleshly. Now the second contrast is between letter and spirit. And we touched on that also briefly last week. But the contrast is very significant because the contrast... The contrast is worded like this. We are servants of a new covenant, and read that part in green with me, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, we saw last week that that, that contrast is between the old way of law inscribed in stone and the new way of the Holy Spirit producing righteousness. Another way we might put it is that the Old Covenant illustrated and demonstrated the need for salvation. The New Covenant gives us the full power of salvation. One poet explained it like this. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. A better hope the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. That is, Old Covenant law was needed, but it was insufficient. Now, we might say, why was it insufficient? Well, I I look at it like this because it leads right into the third contrast. The third contrast, not only is it stone versus fleshly, not only is it letter versus spirit, but it's also, in 2 Corinthians 3.8, it is condemnation versus righteousness. Where does righteousness come from? The human heart is not a factory for righteousness. No human heart can create right standing with God. And what Romans 8.3 tells us, in a very distinct way, Romans 8.3 says, God did what the law could not do. Speak those large words out with me. What the law could not do. Now, it's vital to know this because the seventh chapter of Romans shows us that we shouldn't think of the law as as this um, nefarious instrument. No, the law had a significant purpose in history. And Paul says in in Romans 7 that the law is holy and righteous and good. The problem is, again, the large words say it with me, what the law could not do. What could the law not do? The law could not produce righteousness in this sinful heart of mine or in yours. So the law, another way to look at the law would be, in modern medical technology terms, would be an MRI. The law is God's MRI. In the MRI or a CAT scan, 
specialists in medical practice are looking to see exactly, precisely what is wrong in the human body. The law was God's eternal MRI. <laughs> and, and humanity was examined under the microscope of the law, and it became crystal clear that there is nothing the law can do to produce what you and I need every day, which is freshness of life in God, righteousness, the capacity to obey, an attitude of hope in Christ, and the power when you're tempted to do something really that you know and your conscience tells you this is wrong. You're about to say something you're going to regret. <laughs> you're about to do something you know is contrary to the will of God. Where's the power to change? It's the power of the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of the redeemed. So what we find then in this contrast in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul has used his own correspondence as an example of the living letters that will be written on the heart. Paul has given us a picture of the calling we have to be living sacrifices, to be living epistles, to be living stones. Why? The living part comes from our Savior. His resurrection life gives us the capacity to do these things. And then, to go deeper, to say, why did we need this? Contrast the covenants. One covenant speaks of law written on stone. The other speaks of the word of the living God being produced into the life of a human heart. The writing of God's will into the heart. The second contrast is letter versus spirit. It's not, it's not the capacity to follow specific guidelines. It's the working of the Holy Spirit to make those guidelines a part of our response to the living person of our Savior. Another way to put letter and spirit would be it's living under the Lordship of Jesus that frees us from legalism. Legalism is simply a human endeavor to try to produce righteousness by following prescriptions and guidelines. Those prescriptions and guidelines might be good in many cases, but the human endeavor always fouls it up. The human endeavor stretches guidelines and makes them absurd, or the human endeavor finds all kinds of loopholes in order to avoid obeying that prescription. Bottom line is, when we get our grubby human fingers around rules and regulations, we always produce a mess. And letter versus spirit simply says, God had a better way. And that is relating you and me to the living person of Christ through his word. And, and that's why when Jesus talked about discipleship, he said, if you continue in my word, there are you my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now the contrast then focuses on the last thing I want to touch on today, and that is the absolute splendor of the surpassing glory of what the new covenant gives us. Let me put it in different words. The new covenant that Christ has given us that we honor as we come to the Lord's table and that we know is the anchor in all aspects of your Christian life, that new covenant is God's avenue of bringing a glory to our lives that even, yes, even surpasses 
the glory that caused Moses to have to put a veil over his face because the shine coming from the presence of God was so incandescent. Here it is from the text. Read it with me. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone. This moment in the re-giving of the law, in God's awesome covenant gift to Moses, was attended by a spectacular glory so physically resplendent that Moses didn't even know as he comes out of the immediate presence of God that his face is a blinding light to the people around it. Wow! Now, like many things in God's plan in the New Testament, he gives us this as a backdrop to show us something greater. Could you shout out with me, far greater? Say it with me, far greater. Well, yes, the skin of his face shone while he talked with God. But when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. So what's happening in this contrast between the glory on Moses' face and and your chapter there in 2 Corinthians 3? Well, look in your Bible at 2 Corinthians 3, and now look at verse 9 and 10. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, what is that? That's that old covenant. The ministry of righteousness, what's that? That's the new covenant. The ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Help me one more time, friends. Say, more glory. (laughs) More glory. And then look at verse 10. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. That sentence is basically saying, as glorious as what happened to Moses is, Compared to what God has done through Christ, it now pales into insignificance. This is like, this is like comparing you know, the massive light, uh, the Klieg lights on a football field in, a, in an NFL stadium, compare those to the little closet, the little uh, light in the, in the, in the uh, glove compartment of your car in the dark. It's like you can't even make a comparison that does justice to this. Now look at verse 11. For what if what is passing away was glorious? What's that? Old covenant. What remains? What's that? New covenant. What remains is much more glorious. Now, here's the beautiful thing. The the contrast is that the Torah or the law came to Moses with this supreme glory. The splendor of God's glory literally captivated Moses' face. The veil on Moses' face when speaking to the Israelites was necessary to protect them from the splendor of being in direct contact with God. (laughs) But there was no veil when Moses was communing with God. Now this sets us up for an astounding thing in verses 15 and 16 of 2 Corinthians 3. I hope today as you go that this could get somehow embedded in us, 
This story, though I know it's a distant story in the Old Testament, but it's a background to show us a magnificent gift of the grace of God that we often miss, and that is this, 2 Corinthians 3, 13. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. Now here's the beautiful thing. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, God gave a glory that far surpasses what, even what Moses experienced. And now another difference is that God says, to come to God, you don't have to be veiled anymore. You literally are being given through the New Testament, the New Covenant, You and I are given this astounding confidence. What kind of confidence is this? Well, it's described back in verse 4 in this chapter. Run your finger back to that one first. Look at verse 4. We have such trust through Christ toward God. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. And the parallel here in Ephesians is this. Read this one with me aloud. In Him and through faith in Him. We may approach God with freedom and confidence. With what? An unveiled face. See, the Apostle Paul explains there in 2 Corinthians 3, 13 and 14, that even today when when people just read the Old Testament, now he, he draws from the Old Testament all the time, so he's not saying not to read it, it's the entire Word of God. But his point is the Old Covenant, he says, if they read it without understanding the, the, what Jesus did for us, they're they're veiled because it's aiming us to a relationship with a person. And now through the grace of God, we're united with that person. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16, read that one last verse with me now. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord... The veil is taken away. When one turns to the Lord. Hebrews had this term for this called teshuva. It literally means a turning. Teshuva uh, was a, a turning. And the text tells us when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The teshuva means that the entire life pivots and is reoriented to a new place on the horizon. That is, God does a work that no human heart can ever do, and yet our human heart has to say yes. So teshuva is is the working of the grace of God that brings this awareness to us. The glory of the grace of God has come. Christ promised, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is the personal relationship with the risen Savior, and in our hearts we say, turn me, Lord. Yes, turn me. I couldn't turn myself. I couldn't turn myself, but the Lord turns me. In the book of Acts, Apostle Paul explained it as the reason that we need to hear and cherish and celebrate the cross of Christ 
Because he explained to those that were of an Israelite background in these words, Unto you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your wickedness. This verse strikes me as a wonderful thing to go into this beautiful day with, to realize that it is a blessing, think of it, it's a blessing from God to be turned away from your sins. It's the first way that he blessed the first hearers of the gospel. He blessed them by sending Christ so that teshuva, teshuva, the turning could happen in their hearts. And friends, if it can happen in their hearts, hallelujah, he now invites us to be the people of that great turning. Let's pray together. Thank you for your patience today, for some of the oddities of this, uh, this time. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, you would bring to every heart here today an awareness of how, how beyond what human words could ever convey, that the glory of the New Testament, the glory of the New Covenant, not only surpasses that of the Old, but that the glory that you have promised brings us into an unveiled face relationship with our risen Savior. May those who are here who may have any question in their heart or life about what it means to fully trust in Jesus, may it become crystal clear in these days. In Jesus' name, amen.